0: Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're gonna hear from Steve Cozzella, the president of the Mass Inc. polling group. He's been doing some polling for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, looking at how we as a state are thinking about and responding to the coronavirus crisis. And he's come up with some fascinating takeaways. But first, I wanted to talk with Peter Kazis about Bernie Sanders' exit from the 2020 Democratic presidential race. So I headed down to my basement in Swampscott, fired up Zoom, and connected with Peter in Jamaica Plain. So, Peter, what's the mood in Jamaica Plain this morning?
1: The mood in Jamaica Plain, I guess it's tranquil. I haven't been out of the house. I've seen a few people go by walking their dogs. My son, Jack, just drove to the car dealership to get his ancient Volvo station wagon, uh, not certified, you know, to get a sticker. Uh, My other son's upstairs, Sue was at work at Fenway Health, and uh, I am toiling away, well, not the second, at the keyboards.
0: That sounds pretty good overall, and it looks beautiful out there. I've been amazed. I'm always this way, but now more than ever. If I wake up and the sun is shining brightly, my outlook on the world is radically transformed. It's kind of terrifying how much of a difference it can make.
1: Yeah, the sun makes a big difference, especially in these really strange times. So I got to hear what
0: your thoughts are on the end of Bernie Sanders' candidacy. My sense, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that you started off the 2020 race as something of a Bernie Sanders skeptic. And that over time, you changed the way you thought about him and what he represents. Is that a fair,
1: broad brush assessment? Yes, Adam, I, I, I think so. Look, let me try to refine that a little bit. Um, I really came to appreciate the um, the force and the coherence of the the hardcore Bernie supporters and I, I really hesitate to call them Bernie Bros uh, by the way the Bernie Bros are a subset of the Sanders supporters and you know they're kind of obnoxious and all that, but the bulk of the Sanders supporters aren't. And I, I think one of the challenges moving forward is going to be how do the Democrats tap into this group, um, or to put it in a more negative way, how how do the Democrats deal with them so that the 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 Sanders supporters, you know, don't become a sort of left wing tea party. Um, now, the coronavirus epidemic puts a, you know, a, 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 somewhat of a strain on, on my theory here because we, we just, it's altering so many things in ways that we fail to appreciate. But um, the Bernie supporters. Have a coherence that, uh, by the way, so does the Democratic Party in some ways. Let me give you a a couple of, you're not not huge examples, but um, when the debates began, the Red Scare podcast with, you know, two very smart, two very irreverent uh, ladies, did a hilarious rundown of all 24 candidates, deliciously rude in many parts. But they didn't have a lot to say about Biden, but just came to the conclusion that they um, they didn't see any circumstances under which they could support him. And they did a spoiler alert early in this podcast saying that they were Bernie supporters. Now, that's many months ago. Flash forward to the day Bernie, you know, quote, withdrew, unquote. Elizabeth Brunick, the New York Times opinion writer, she has been a, she was a big Bernie supporter. And someone had asked if she would support Biden. And she tweeted out, um, well, my, my email's on my bio if they want to contact me. Now, I, I'm sure there's an element of, you know, Twitter the- theatricality to it, um, and, and I'm just using it as a as a moment in time, but, you know, you and I both know uh, uh, Grace Holy, the housing activist and housing expert, and, you know, we've seen her tweets about um, being disappointed that Bernie... Um, withdrew, and, you know, a, a, a more acerbic friend of ours, Scamwell Tally, just letting the flamethrowers loose on, um, on Biden. These are not isolated incidents, and, and people in the Boston sphere, I think, would be wrong to think that they are. There's a real generational divide, and it probably begins around 40, you know, 35 to 40. And the the younger part of that is very skeptical of the Democratic establishment, Um, and I can understand why. Peter,
0: that Brunig anecdote suggests a desire to be courted politically on the part of at least one prominent Sanders supporter. But how effective do you think any kind of courtship effort by the Biden campaign would be, given that last time around, the Sanders faithful felt like he got a raw deal from the Democratic establishment. And this time around, you know, on the heels of that mass exodus of candidates so that Biden could keep Sanders from becoming the nominee, I think that same feeling is still very much out there, that Sanders was screwed by, you know, the the Democratic machine. How do you deal with that if you're the Biden campaign in a way that's even partially effective?
1: Adam, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think but Before we can answer it, we have to understand why Bernie lost, and he did lose he He didn't get a raw deal. he lost um, First of all, Sanders isn't really a Democrat; he has no real ties to the Democratic party, and whatever we may think of the Democratic Party, it is an entity. it is an organization you have to deal with. you know secondly. Um, 538 pointed this out. Um, His campaign wasn't as smart as everyone thought it was. He said he was going to have this coalition of minorities and young people and progressives. Well, after when it really counted from Super Tuesday on, it never coalesced. And Biden romped him, pure and simple. Now, where we go from here, who the heck knows?
0: Before we wrap up, you mentioned a couple minutes ago the possibility of Sanders loyalists becoming the equivalent of a Tea Party on the left. What are you talking about there?
1: Well, I'm talking about something that's largely fueled by the media. And, you know, the Tea Party had Fox, which was very powerful. But there are real alternatives, media outlets out there, you know, like the Chapo Trap House podcast, Jacobin Magazine, um, mainstream columnists like Elizabeth Brunig, for example. I think what the Biden campaign has to fear are the, the dead serious, super smart Sanders cheerleaders. And as you know, I've never given the, the Biden campaign high marks for intelligence. So they've got their work cut out for them.
0: As you say what you just did, I find myself thinking what happened with the Tea Party is that they took over the Republican establishment. So if that's a source of concern for Biden and his supporters, maybe that's exactly what a lot of people who really dig Sanders would like to see happen.
1: Well, they would, hence AOC's popularity, hence Ayanna Presley's popularity. There's only a handful of people, but, you know, politics is long.
0: All right. Peter Keds, it's good to talk to you and enjoy the day and the weekend in JP to the extent that you can these days.
1: Okay. Take care, Adam.
0: All right, on to my conversation with Steve Cazella. As I mentioned earlier, he is the president of the Mass Inc polling group, and he spent the past few weeks digging into the impact of COVID-19 on attitudes and behaviors here in Massachusetts. By the way, Steve is also the host of the excellent political podcast, The Horse Race. Back when the anti-gay activist Scott Lively was running for governor, Steve was kind enough to have me on the horse race to talk about Lively's candidacy. So it was great to be able to have him join us, even under the current circumstances. Take a listen. So let me just start off by asking you, how are you and your family doing? Because, like I said on Twitter, uh, when we were exchanging messages, I had not realized that you think you probably all experience the coronavirus. Tell me what you've been through and and how you're doing now.
2: Yeah, we had the symptoms that everybody describes, you know, so we don't know for sure just cuz we were not able to get tested like so many other people, um but uh we my wife and I had symptoms similar to to what people describe for COVID-19 starting in mid-March. Um, tried to get tested a few times um, we're, we were mostly unsuccessful. Um, my wife actually did manage to get tested then about um, a week and a half ago or so and the test when the test came back they had actually messed it up somehow so even despite finally managing to be able to get tested to find out if that 's what we had, uh, we still don 't really know for sure if, if that 's what it was so um, but now you know we 're um, we're, I guess, three and a half or so weeks on, and um, everything seems to be fine. You know, we we never really had the the dramatic escalation uh, that, that that happens for some people. You know, and never escalated to pneumonia. Never had to be hospitalized or anything like that. So, I'm um, doing much better now. I'm glad to hear this. As
0: as you know, there's a whole range of symptoms that seem to present with this, ranging from you know simply debilitating fatigue to body aches, fever, heck and cough. Can you tell me a little more just about how it manifested
2: itself, whatever you guys had for you and your wife? Sure. So for me, um, it was the Friday, actually, that everything sort of shut down, the Friday that everybody went to work for the last, last time. Uh, just the day after that, I, suddenly that evening, I, I was feeling fine. And then I had a, like the, the worst feeling fever that I've ever had. Like I was suddenly shaking, my body suddenly hurt, and I needed to like run upstairs to bed and cover myself with all the blankets I could find and get a heating pad. I mean, it was like very sudden. Um, that I was having the, these the just tremendous shakes and body aches and fever um, it, it, it was actually pretty controllable with fever reducers, so that that was one thing I think that made it, uh, it made it not as bad as it probably could have been um, but but then for the next couple of days, the fever and, um, and body aches persisted uh, the, the fever body aches uh, shivers and so forth and then What happened to us and what's happened, what just reading, you know, people posting about it on social media, what seems to happen is then a few days after that, things feel a little bit better. And it's, you know, you've, you've got kind of a minor cough, but it's not, too bad, and you think, oh, well, maybe that was a super mild case. Um, and then the respiratory issues really start, you know, and you start to have the very significant dry cough and it, you know, you can't really control it, it just goes, you start feeling sh- a little bit short of breath, you know, just you're, you're trying not to breathe too hard so you don't cough too much, so then you feel short of breath, um, and that the, the, the cough just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, I don't have it very seriously anymore, but I still have just ever so minor of a cough that, that's, that is happening now, we're, we're almost a month on. You know, we're recording this uh, almost a month after 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 symptoms started. Um, there's also then congestion, a little bit of congestion that goes along with it, and then uh, and then weirdly, uh, pink eye is one other symptom that that often happens. Um, <clears throat> well, I should say it's it's not that common, but uh, reading up on it, it actually does happen reasonably frequently and uh, it did happen to me and did happen to her so um it kind of and then it just kind of hangs on and hangs on and hangs on um you know even weeks after you've had it like it, when you wake up in the morning it's like oh yeah I'm still feeling it just a little bit
0: you guys I believe um like my wife and I have kids right you have a couple yeah we have three girls how did okay we've got two how did they hold up did they get sick
2: as well or did they manage to dodge it yeah, well, that's one of the kind of weird things about it is that uh, one of them actually had it w- well before us. You know, even before, back when uh, Boston was st- still in reporting one confirmed case, you know, my five-year-old was had symptoms at that point that were basically, I think, the same ones that we had, but, you know, in late February, this wasn't you know, this set of symptoms wasn't something that just sort of automatically tripped your radar for, oh my God, this is what it could be. Um, whereas now, like if you have, if you're short of breath or have a fever or have a sore throat or anything like that, that's actually one I forgot to mention is a very bad sore throat that starts in the first couple of days too. Um, you know, if you have those symptoms now, you kind of, start to think about that and try to see if you can get tested and so forth. But back then it's like, you know, kids get sick all the time. They get colds, they get flus, they go to school and get something they get strep and you know, it just comes and goes. Um, but if we knew what we had, you know, if we'd been able to get tested at some point, then, you know, she was sick with whatever, with a very a thing, with very similar symptoms even back in late February. Um, so uh, I just wish that there were testing, <laughs> you know, cause if there were, we could say so much more about like what happened to us, what happens, you know, in Melrose, how long this has been going on for, and then start to say, be able to, uh, know that we're, we have some level of immunity, whatever immunity turns out to be, you know, we could know how afraid we have to be. We could know if we're still really at risk right now of being infected, or at least know something more about that. So the the lack of testing really has been a bummer. And then the failure, the testing failure really was a bummer for, for us also.
0: When you describe all that stuff, I try to imagine what it would be like if I was going through it, and my wife and and our kids. And I gotta say, it's hard for me to imagine continuing to work, to do the work that I'm supposed to do. And and I have the luxury of working at home, calling people on the phone, talking to them for for stories. Uh, I'm not out there delivering groceries or serving customers in a grocery store or picking up trash, anything tough like that. It's hard for me to imagine not being totally overmatched. And yet you have continued to do the the work that you do. Has that been challenging at all? Or has work been a sort of outlet that lets you get your mind off what you've been through and are still going through?
2: There was some irony in the fact that the work that we've really been doing has been a tracking poll pull about coronavirus. So, you know, it did mean that I was reading about it a lot more and sort of knew or started my antenna started to go up as these symptoms were accumulating that maybe that's what was going on. But there were some days where it was like I... It was not really not feeling well at all, um, but it was. We had the survey coming out. I, I have to also give um, a major shout out and props to to our staff, um, particularly Rich Parr and Maeve Duggan for you know keeping things rolling, um, and Libby Libby Gormley also just uh, what when I when I really couldn't do do very much. Um, they've they've all been been amazing at, at helping to create and, and push this data forward. But you you know there certainly are were days and evenings where was like trying to get the data out while also really struggling with you know with the symptoms and particularly the fatigue you know the rest of it you can kind of deal with you can bring the fever down you can you know deal with the sore throat but just being so tired you know that was that was a big part of the pro- of the challenge
0: let's talk about some of the big findings that you've come
2: up with as you've been doing this polling Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts has been the sponsor of the poll. Um, it's, we've been doing a tracking poll, which which roughly speaking means you're asking a similar set of questions, maybe with some new additions e- with each wave of data. Um, so then you can see how things change over time. You know, often tracking polls will be done uh, on a monthly or even yearly basis where you're trying to see how things move over the long term. Uh, but for this, everything's been changing and it's been changing so fast, you know, even day to day, it's like what social distancing actions are we supposed to be taking? Are we supposed to be wearing masks? Are we supposed to be going to work? Shopping less? Not at all. You know, both the recommendations and then personal behavior has been, have been changing very fast. So we've been doing this tracking poll with waves that, that range between four and seven days. Um, and even they're finding big changes in how people are feeling and approaching this over that period of time.
0: I was looking at some of the findings from the recent round of polling that you've done. Uh, there is a ton of stuff to talk about If a policymaker came to you, Governor Baker, the Senate President, House Speaker, Mayor Marty Walsh, anyone like that, and said, uh, hey, I know you've been looking really closely at how people's attitudes are changing, what should we be thinking about as we make policy? What would you single out for them?
2: So right now, I think that the the thing that I'd single out is the economic damage that's being done and the consequences that are starting to pile up that are related to that. You know, early on, you can think, you know, the phase early on was like, we all have to get home. We have to learn how to do this. We have to stop seeing each other and hugging each other and going shopping. and And OK. That all happened, you know, whereas now it's like, it's into the next phase, I think, and um, what we're seeing now is the economic damage really piling up. Um, we, ha- we asked, for instance, how many people have lost a job since the beginning of the crisis, and we've, the number that, that is in the poll just out this week is 20% of people say that they've lost a job since the crisis started. Um, and among people who are still employed, uh, people who still have their jobs, 34% say that they've lost some portion of their paycheck. You know, so we're seeing these big unemployment numbers com- coming out and unemployment claims coming out, but uh, I, I think this just helps to, helps to show how what those numbers are going to start to look like. Um, the other thing, though, that the, the details of those numbers, I think, are also, would also be important for policymakers, um, which are that the, the problem is especially acute among people who really didn't have anything to lose. Uh, Already, we're talking about uh, lower-income households, part-time workers, hourly workers—you um, know, people who—it's it, not like they had—they had sort of a lot of cushion, I guess is maybe a better way to put it. Um, so that the, the economic consequences are are, are really becoming serious. Uh, we're also seeing then that people in those same groups are are saying that they can't go much longer before financial hardships start to accumulate. Um, so. A a lot of people are already experiencing it, but then you're going to see a similar uh, kind of skew to who um, who starts to experience hardships in the weeks in the weeks to come. So I think that's kind of the biggest thing. It's like we've done the first thing that you asked us to do, but now you know we're all still thinking that this is the right thing to do, but there will really start to be pain. There will really start to be problems as the weeks and potentially months uh, continue um, and, and the economic uh, reality that we've, uh, that we've started to live with uh, continues over the next weeks and months.
0: Also, your polling suggests that there is already a real mental health impact on the people who say that they are feeling economic pain and concerned about their ability to weather it, which makes sense.
2: Yeah, that, that's one of, the, one of the new questions that we asked this week was just what people are doing and what people are experiencing um, that's different than, than things that they've done or experienced before the, before the uh, coronavirus crisis began. And one of the things that we found was that mental health or just feeling sad and depressed is something that's gone up pretty considerably in that, in that period of time. Um, and like economic consequences, it's concentrated. You know, it's concentrated among the same groups that I that I just mentioned, as far as people who have lost jobs, and it's even con- even more concentrated among people who say that they've lost jobs um, or, or lost wages. You know, it, it's it, it's not just an economic situation. You know, it's an economic situation. It's a mental health situation, and another thing that we found that was closely related is actually exercise and spending time outside. So I think it's also just it, it's also a physical health situation. You know, all these consequences or all these challenges are are accumulating to basically the same groups of people. You know, everybody's feeling some degree of disruption and, and pain. Uh, some have more of a cushion and some are experiencing less consequences, uh, whereas others, it, it's all of the economic, all of the physical, all of the mental uh, issues are, are, are concentrated among the same groups of people.
0: As you think through that, I know it is not your job as a pollster to say, and so we should do acts based on this data, but you're also someone who is a political observer. You analyze politics via a couple different platforms. What are your thoughts on the challenge that the state and municipalities now face when it comes to, on the one hand, recognizing that this is creating a great deal of economic and psychological pain for especially vulnerable populations, but on the other hand, We have, as you know full well from personal experience, this real profound public health challenge facing us and there's a risk by all accounts if we pull back on the changes
2: that we've made to everyday life too soon. How do you think that through? I think some of it is expanding our understanding of the impacts I think will help in some ways. You know, we've, we've focused, I think, rightly so far on the impacts just in terms of preventing further spread and minimizing further spread. Um, we focused on economic impact to a certain certain extent with Uh, things like the federal bailout or stimulus or whatever we're calling it that was passed and some of the state programs that have been passed and so forth, you know, the SBA loans for small businesses and so forth. Um, But now I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that the impacts will spread and are already spreading beyond that um, and understand that this is going to become a physical health crisis or physical health challenge, even for people who never get it, um, just because it's, you know there's. The lack of exercise, um, that lack of exercise, too, is concentrated particularly in urban areas. Lack of time outside is concentrated in urban areas. You know, it, just to uh, look at that dynamic a little bit, in rural areas, it's roughly split in terms of the percent who say they spent more or less time outside, about 28% on either. Um, and then the rest say that they've, they're, it's about the same. Looking at urban residents, 68% say they spent less time outside, and 48% say they've gotten less exercise. Um, So that's one where I think the set of issues that we're considering, I think, just aren't don't quite encompass the problems that people are are going to experience. Um, and then the same thing, I think, on the, on the mental health side, where, uh, you know, the percentages who have lost a job and say they felt more sad or depressed, 47% of those who have lost a job, 42% of those who have lost paid, lost pay, 43% of part-time workers, you know, and all of these are higher than sort of their counterparts. Um, people who still have jobs, haven't lost pay, full-time workers, you know. So I think expanding how we're, thinking about the policy response um, beyond first the immediate public health then the economic now we've got another set of things that we need to, to grapple with so we don't come out of this you know depressed unemployed and not healthy <laughs> you know because that's where a lot of this is. a lot of these figures seem to be headed at this point.
0: I feel like it's worth mentioning that despite all the real serious concerns that you just highlighted, you guys did find broad support for the way that the state and cities and towns have responded to this, right? And that also coexists with a gradual increase in the degree to which people perceive COVID-19 as a threat in a whole range of different ways. Is that a fair broad brush characterization?
2: It is. I mean, you're you're correct. Uh, first on what you what you just said. The second thing you said, which is that the the assessment of how serious of a threat it is has continued to increase. People. Um, Think that it's a threat to people across the state, people in your city or town. Even uh, just over half now think it's a threat to them, them personally, a very serious threat to them personally. Um, and almost everyone thinks it's at least somewhat serious of a threat to them personally. So you know that that has has trended upward even from where we were just in mid March, and is one of the things that makes a track and poll so so useful. Um, but the other thing is is that yes, even though people are experiencing all kinds of problems, you know the economy. Is seeing unemployment like we've we haven't seen in decades and spikes like we've never seen. And and even with that, and even with all the other challenges I just mentioned, you still have 64% saying the response in their area has been about right, and another 28% saying it could even go further. So almost nobody um thinks that that you know, this is a dramatic overreaction and we've really gone too far, um, you know, based on our polling. And that's, that's another dynamic, which we've seen echoed across the country. You know, there's a remarkable degree of unity on something so big, you know, we see unity on some, you know, I think smaller issues in polling from time to time. Um, but, this for something that's so big and so disruptive and so pervasive and so difficult, I think, is it's really remarkable you know, what people are, are enduring and what people think is the right thing for them to do. Um, and in many cases, not even for them personally. You know, young people, uh, have, for instance, have suffered some of the most serious economic issues. And they're at the least risk. Um, and they know that they're at the least risk. And even so, they're, they're very much on board with you know, thinking that this is the right right approach.
0: Let's talk about what you guys found about what people are doing to get through this. I was struck by the fact that the big winners in terms of what people are spending more time doing are not necessarily the things that from surfing Twitter or (laughs) social media, uh, wherever else you get it, not necessarily the winners that you would expect. Talk me through what it is people are doing more of and what people are doing less of.
2: Right, so the biggest thing that they're doing more of is reading and watching the news. Um, so that's the one with the highest percentage who say they're doing more of that. Uh, we also asked that question in another part of the survey, just how closely are you following this? Um, and with 72% saying very closely, that's the, the most closely watched news story that we've ever done any polling on. Uh, probably not surprisingly, just because of how pervasive it, and uh, you know, all-encompassing it is, um, but still interesting. Uh, then the next thing was talking to family and friends by phone or video. So, um, anecdotally for me, I think certainly the resurgence of just picking up the phone and calling people has has been something that's been a bit different. You know, I've had 15 and 20 minute conversations with just friends of mine that I probably haven't talked to on the phone in years. You know, yeah, you know
0: it's worth just to interrupt you. You and I are both native Midwesterners, and I've been doing for the past few weeks, like a lot of other people out there, uh, you know, a uh, a Zoom happy hour where I talked to a bunch of guys I went to high school with who now live across the country. And that, that has been a silver lining, no question.
2: Yeah, so that's been, that's been uh, one positive one. Uh, TV is another one that saw a big increase. Uh, 51% say more, only 4% say that they've been watching less TV. Um, and then the next one is preparing your own meals, which was interesting. So 45% of people say they're preparing their own meals more, um, about half say uh, the same amount. So basically cooking at home is something that's seen a major, you know, m- major increase. Um, which of course not-
0: is not good for restaurants that do takeout.
2: Yeah, I was going to say on the on the flip side of that, um, we have only 15% saying that they've been ordering more takeout food, with uh, 53% saying less. So a huge decrease in takeout, and that's on top of the fact that restaurants already can't do sit-down service or anything like that. So um, you know, you you do see on social media about uh, trying to support your local restaurants and so forth. But when you're just looking at the raw numbers, it's it's not there's not an increase in in ordering takeout. Much more cooking at home. Um, You certainly see that also just going through the grocery store and what foods they're out of is just because everyone's cooking themselves, you know, instead of going to restaurants, which used to supply a lot of their, a lot of their food. Um, Social media usage is also up. So you sort of combine social media, TV and news. And and I think just information consumption is really off the charts. Um, then uh, baking is up a little bit uh, not as much as all the other ones, but more people are baking it 's not quite as it 's not this like explosion of sourdough aficionados that I think uh, Instagram would have you believe but but it is up a little bit and then the three things that are really down uh, like way down are outdoor time um, I, we talked a little bit about the urban and rural split there uh, exercise only twenty percent of people say more exercise um, compared to thirty six percent who say less so that 's another one which is down that kind of makes Made me feel good that I'm not alone on that one. <laughs> and then takeout uh is, is the very bottom with with just a big drop in ordering takeout.
0: The same goes for me there. I also would be reassured if I saw it quantified that I'm not the only person who's maybe having one more drink in the evening than they ordinarily would. Uh <laughs> I, I don't think I'm the only one who's doing that. Uh, but I haven't seen the data, so
2: yeah. No, we don't have data on that. But I'd love to love to know, and I think I suspect you're probably correct. There's a lot more that I would like to pull on. If, if uh, this is the last wave that Blue Cross is is doing, but there's a lot of other things like that uh, that I'd love to cover if if we can identify a sponsor to keep the survey going. Oh, this is going to be the last round of the poll, the one that just came out. It is for now. I mean, we are in the act of actively searching for a new sponsor for the survey, but for now, uh, this is the last. Blue Cross was, uh, I think, very rapidly responsive and generous to sponsor these three weeks and um, four waves, but this is the end for now.
0: Steve Cazella, thank you for making time to talk with me about all of this, and I'm really happy that you guys have gotten through what sounds like a pretty scary period. Thank you, Adam. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrub. Thanks to Steve Cazella, the president of the Mass Inc. Polling Group, for joining us. And as always, to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already. Rate us while you're at it. And let us know what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's S as in sandwich and Matthews with one T. For the record, we also get help from a bunch of other people at WGBH with Gary Mott, first among equals. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.